Hello, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. And today I'm talking to some folks behind some of my favorite summer movies. So let me tell you about the first time I saw Sorry to Bother You, one of my favorite movies of the summer. It was at a press screening where there were a bunch of, let's say, older journalists, many of whom were apparently there as members of the Hollywood Foreign Press, the organization that votes on the Golden Globes. The lights went down. We settled in for what was one of the biggest hits out of Sundance. The man behind me crinkled a little candy as he opened it. Sorry to Bother You isn't like most movies. It has a plot, yes, but it doesn't follow the typical three-act structure we're used to. It is, instead, a riotously funny, incredibly imaginative movie that examines this moment in history via the lens of very, very light science fiction. It takes place in the present, but a present that's just about two degrees off-center, where corporations actually own people instead of figuratively owning them. And that's where we find the movie's protagonist, Cassius Green, played by Lakeith Stanfield. Cassius, who is a young black man, takes a job at a call center where he's encouraged to use his white voice, which comes out sounding just like the comedian David Cross. Now, I want to say that I love this movie. I loved it. It's a cinch for my year-end top 10. And the deeper we got into it and the more weird ideas and flights of fancy it introduced and the more devoted it became to its incredibly leftist politics, the more I was into it. And the greatness of Sorry to Bother You is thanks to one Boots Riley, the movie's writer and director. He's a terrific rapper with the group The Coup, and this is his first movie, and it's a kaleidoscopic journey through his beloved Oakland, laced with humor, with heart, and with some really amazing ideas. I talked with Boots shortly before the movie was released, and we had a great chat about everything from making this movie to the history of American labor unions. Stick around. My guest is Boots Riley. He's the director of Sorry to Bother You, wonderful new indie film. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to talk to you about the concept of social satire, which sounds very broad. But uh, just to get a sense of why that is, can you just uh, tell our listeners, you know, what this movie is, what it's about, what you're uh, trying to do with it? Well, well so the, the word satire, and, you know, it has a certain aesthetic uh connotation right that i'm not necessarily down with like what does satire mean except that someone is putting their viewpoint right out about stuff yeah and which that's what every movie is doing yeah (laughs) you know and it's only called satire when the idea is different than what the other movies put out sure sure and and but but then it has this sort of connotation that 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 makes you think about certain aesthetics that that other movies may have like a bullworth or something like that and right. you know and, and that, that's the same thing with me with my music is that people will call it political music as if every music isn't political however there's so many things that go into that genre that people will call a political political music that I don't like at all. Mm. Like so many people that I would agree with that I wouldn't want to listen to their stuff because some of that is like, comes from a like, Oh, you got to be angry or whatever. But because my idea about the world is that there is a way to change things. Sure. And you know, that it's a lot more optimistic. And I think maybe that's also what I'm picking up on when there's satire often it's so cynical that I don't see this film fitting in with that. So what my film, I don't know exactly what it's trying to do. It definitely is a reflection of me 
and my ideas about the world as probably any piece of art that someone makes is. Um, I definitely didn't want someone to be able to come away and say, this movie is about this. Right. I mean, you can say that, and you could say that in a number of different ways, but each way that you say it, if you pick one thing, you'll be lying by omission. And uh, and I think that's like closer to how the world feels and, uh, you know, in general, how we feel in life. But one thing is that there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens in the movie. Right. But it's, in general, a story of someone trying to connect with the world. And it definitely has, for me, it has a viewpoint. And I, I think that it's optimistic in the end. But yeah, I don't know. People I, have to tell me. I've, I've, I certainly felt a sense of optimism coming off of it, especially in the last, you know, five to ten minutes of the film. I think what you're talking about is we've sort of come to think of satire as, and this is a bad uh, definition of it, you know, Jon Stewart on The Daily Show, um, the idea of like snarkily making fun of the current political situation. And I think like, but I do think and, like... And, and, and with that, often we're all taught that we can't change anything. Right. Mm-hmm. So our analysis of the world then gets limited to just talking about how bad things are. Yeah, yeah. And not, oh, this is bad, and this is the this is the uh, leverage point by which we have to change it. I kind of am thinking of it more in terms of using some other viewpoint, usually comedy, but occasionally it'll be like sci-fi or horror or something like that, to take a look at the world as it is and suggest, like, these are some things that maybe we haven't examined that could stand to be better. Like a movie that your movie really made me think of is uh, Brazil, um, which it felt very similar to me. It's in its construction of a world that's just like right off to the side of our own world. So tell me a little bit about like um, building the world of, of this film. Well, it's interesting that you bring up Brazil. I mean, obviously um, I love Terry Gilliam's stuff, but it was interesting. I read some interviews by him at around the time and he was feeling really frustrated that everybody thought that Brazil happened in the future right mm-hmm. even though at the beginning it says somewhere in the 20th century and for me I think a lot big part of that had to do with the production design of how out there it was which I love but it made people feel like oh obviously this isn't now this might be in the future that sort of a thing. So with our production design, we wanted to push things, but just not so much to the limit where you felt like it was a different world. And so that that was a big part of it. The other part of it was, was details in the world. We wanted to make this beautiful clutter that I think is more more realistic in the sense that a lot of times, even like with indie films, like, take a neon demon or something like that. It's shot in this beautiful way, but it's very sparse. It's a certain kind of composition where there's this one thing happening in the middle and, you know, a pink wall or something like that, which is interesting and cool, but it ends up pushing it even further away from when are we ever going to see that except in a nightclub that's trying to do that or something like that so 
um, embracing some of the stuff that that in real life that doesn't seem like a production designer would like, you know, focus on it or whatever. And, and putting that in there, of course, we are manipulating that. And our production designer was an amazing guy named Jason Kisvarde, who also worked on Swiss Army Man. And um, more importantly to me, uh, the, the turn down for what music mm. video. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, embracing this clutter and also embracing that in the way that the story progresses, mm-hmm. that there's all this stuff happening and the stuff gets put into the story, got put into the story as I wrote it because I needed to express something. I had a problem that I, and that I had to solve right. and this solved it. So it all kind of goes in there for a reason. It's not just this random amount of stuff, but you kind of get this, this cluttered feeling to the, the way that things are happening and the, the editing and all of that. So, so that was a big part of building it. But to make us care about it and not think about it as other than real, um, we had to ground that in, in naturalistic performances. Yeah. What are some other movies you think handle that task of building a world that is our world but also not our world really well? There's a movie uh, with Peter O'Toole in it called uh, The Ruling Class. Oh, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I love the movie. It's dark, cynical look at the ways that, that capitalism works in the U.K. or worked in the U.K. at the time. Still does that way. Uh, let's see. Uh, Underground. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, I love that movie. Um, Amir Costa Rica. Basically, he's inside there creating an alternative universe yeah. for a group of people yeah. that, are, that are underground, kind of what the, the filmmaker is doing. So I love that. You know, Spike Jones does that very well. Yeah, you mentioning underground made me think of um, the Charlie Kaufman movie, uh, Synecdoche, New oh, yeah. York, which is like this, it's oh, this yeah. movie about this stage director who builds essentially a microcosm of the world in a warehouse. <laughs> yeah. It's so strange. Yeah. I love that. I, yeah, I love that movie too. What appeals to you sort of um, that idea of a world within a world, like in Underground or a lot of Spike Jones movies too are that way? Um, it's reflexive. It's the, the, the filmmaker including himself, hopefully in a way that it's not distracting, but including himself in the indictment. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I do think, though, that the company in this movie is every corporation in capitalism yes. in some ways. It's like uh, exploiting people and even people who rise to new levels are just further exploited by it. I'm sort of interested in the question of criticizing capitalism within, you know, the Hollywood system, which is as capitalist as it comes. So talk about that. Well, Okay, and then I just thought of another one. Oh, go for it, go for Ro- it. Tell RoboCop. Me. Oh, yeah, that's a great movie. I love Robo- RoboCop. What do you like about that one? Um, I know when I saw it as a kid, I didn't realize it was making a comment on, you know, the way the world is. I was just like, well, okay, wow. Well, seeing it later, I loved, uh, you know, the indictment of the the culture that we actually have right now being fascist i just was reading some old reviews of it when it came out and people were like when would the police ever be so militaristic and i was like people of 1987 (laughs) 
You have no idea. They had already been running. Yeah. They, they had bombed move. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I, what I was asking about was creating an anti-capitalist movie or a movie that's extremely critical oh, yeah. of capitalism. And the, well, here's anything. the thing is that there are no shelters against capitalism. Mm-hmm. So even if you are the organizer of this uh, anti-capitalist punk venue. Right. Um, where, you know, it's a sliding scale to get in and all that kind of stuff. You're operating within a capitalist world and fulfilling a need mm. that allows it to go on. There's no way to wiggle in and out and be be clean of it, you know? The only way that we have to actually do something about it is organizing collectively along the lines of our economic function in this world. Right. And 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 for so long the the left has gotten away from that that we think we can go in the woods and make an anti-capitalist commune or something like that that will that will somehow change the world. But this comes at the same time as you know starting with the 50s with unions being de-radicalized uh, through purges and the McCarthy era and 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 the left turning more and more towards spectacle as opposed to actually, like, here's how the system works, actually using class analysis and being involved in class struggle. So knowing that, knowing that there's no, like, indie label or on the music side, I've been ripped the hell off by indie labels. Yeah. They are just little capitalists. Mm-hmm. No matter how alt they seem, they're the same. And, and, and for that being the same, I will say this, that we all, most of us know that the world is messed up. And often we don't know that we can do anything about it. And we're told you can't. So people pick their job mm-hmm. based on that. So um, there are some people that are like, that have very good intentions. Like, you know, I'm making a a business that doesn't do this and doesn't do that and blah, blah, blah. But it comes from this whole sort of boycott culture that came and was promoted as an answer to strikes. A big place that it got promoted was with uh, Cesar Chavez and the UFW. Cesar Chavez didn't want to organize undocumented workers, which most of the workers in the field were undocumented. Matter of fact, he actually organized to help immigration officers get rid of undocumented workers and and help man the borders. So in the midst of all of a sudden you have a union that can't do strikes because they are not actually working with most of the workforce that are there, they started calling for boycotts. Right. Mm-hmm. Boycotts are pretty ineffective in general mm-hmm. because one, you don't know who's boycotting. Two, it's not nowhere near as effective as cutting it off at the source, which is at labor. Anyway, so this boycott culture, which is pretty not scary to <laughs> to most people. I mean, think about how many boycotts against Nike there's been. Right? Who cares? You know, they might change a little bit of something so that they can seem, you know, a little cooler or whatever that's seem like they're answering people, but you can't sustain those. It's not something that, that you can do in that same way. Now, 
through that same whole culture has come this whole thing. Well, if that's what organizing is, just boycotting the products that you don't like, then I can just buy the products that don't do something bad, which is no product, you know, but there are ones that their whole marketing scheme is we don't do something bad, Starbucks and all that. So you can feel like you're doing something. Yeah. Like you can feel like, wow, you know, I, you know, I was just going to get a coffee and not be involved in anything, but I can get a coffee and have helped out the rainforest or something like that. Right. And it, it allows that sort of thing to go on. And then because of that whole business models are made where people feel like they are actually involved in social change by, you know, Supporting making this other yeah. business, mm-hmm. you know, that, and somehow they're not as, you know, capitalist as a, no, a little capitalist is as capitalist as a big capitalist. Yeah. It's just one is in a different stage of development. So here's my point. What am I going to do? Do nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm making art that hopefully will get people inspired to create or join organizations that use their real power base, um, which is an economic power base starting at where people work in order to make social change, large and small social change. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned during that answer that you were, that you think the left gets distracted by spectacle or interested in spectacle. What do you mean by that? And like, what are some examples of when that's happened? Do you mean like the boycott thing? Well, not only that, but um, in the twenties and thirties, there were millions of radicals in the United States out revolutionaries and in places like Utah, Montana, Alabama, Colorado, there were places in the in the 20s and 30s that J. Edgar Hoover said were hotbeds of communist activity, actually red states, which now their grandchildren are there and they're called red states for a different reason. And um, during that time, there were militant strikes going on all over the U.S., like Mining strikes where the miners were shooting it out with the people that were protecting the mines and the police. In, in the Midwest, they were actually occupying factories, right. shutting them down, taking them over. Also in the 20s, something somewhat unrelated, but not unrelated to the milieu where it was happening, you had something called the Bonus March, where veterans of World War I wanted their bonus checks that they didn't get. And they marched on the White House with guns. And were met by tanks with General MacArthur. Around the world, there was revolutions. With this all going on, you had actual people that, that were in the 1%, if you want to call them, the ruling class, whatever, who were scared that there was a real revolutionary movement going on. It was in that context that we got the New Deal. It wasn't because people were like, let's get FDR in there. That obviously happened, but... It, nobody thought that that was the thing that was going to do it. It was, it was because the folks that he had to answer to were scared. Yeah. Right? Now, going on from that, radicals and revolutionaries had been hoping that the U.S. would get involved in fighting Hitler. Right. 
there was a call for a united front against fascism, where the U.S. did obviously eventually join World War II and fight against Hitler. They were late, but they did. And radicals and revolutionaries here said that part of the deal was they weren't going to fight. They weren't going to organize against the U.S. here while that fight was going on. So it went underground, where, as before, people were out, organizers, and there was, you know, this whole, like, radical atmosphere that was happening in the U.S. Think about it like this. At that same time that I was talking about all that stuff happening, along the coast of California, the longshoremen started organizing their unions for the first time. They, they were considered less than custodians as far as their skill level. So people were like, you can't organize that. They're always getting fired. They're blah, blah, blah. But they had a militant strike in which uh, state militias were called out, and they were fighting tanks to have their union have. It's not in movies why. It was a big part of history, you know. But anyway, the milieu that all that stuff was happening, they were like, okay, we're not going to organize here right now during this. Matter of fact, we're going to hide what the politics are so that we can get everybody on board with getting behind the U.S. and the military going to fight Hitler. So underground for 12 years, up comes the 50s and the McCarthy era where they could actually be like, look, all these people that are keeping themselves secret, they really have some politics they're not telling you about. They're communists. They're not. T- and whereas 12 years before, had they done that, people would have been like, we know <laughs> they're, you know, we were, we were talking to them about it the other day, but yeah. they were able to create this cloak and dagger sort of view about it. And with that became the breakup of the biggest radical organization that there had been in the United States, which was the communist party USA and them leaving those unions and all these little organizations got formed, mm-hmm. which became what we called the new left. And those organizations that came out of that breakup were around in the 60s. And, they, and they're all the ones that we love. A lot of it became like the free speech movement and some of the other things that we saw across campuses in the 60s, which is where everybody th- thinks like the, the birth of, you know, radicalism in the U.S. was. But they did one thing that was much different. One they were outward. They were like, we're revolutionaries. Fuck you. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. But at the same time, they called for people to move away from places like Utah and Alabama and Montana into cities and focusing on students. Mm. This made their not be able to do things like strikes because their strikes were really just for show because there's no profit to stop, right? So they have big demonstrations in the middle of the street, and they were, that was the end, that that was where all of a sudden it became about getting people in the street, where in the 20s and 30s, when they had 50,000 people in the street, this is where the word demonstration came from, because they were saying, this is a demonstration of how many people we have to shut down your industry. Mm-hmm. So a demonstration meant something because it was a warning that we are organized in a way to make you lose a bunch of money, answer what we want right now. And we all know that money is what the basis of this stuff is. So all of a sudden, the left 
became about letting their voice be heard and not about the nuts and bolts of how this economic system works. So uh, radicals hid in art like me or academia, and it became more and more based on writing stuff. If you're hiding in academia, if you're being an academic, it's about writing a book that says something that someone else didn't say. And that that book is just based on you being there, you know, um, and figuring out a a better way to say something or something different to say. Whereas if there was a movement attached with, you know, where people are organizing to try to get things done, then the the next thing you say is based on your findings Mm. from trying to get people to do things. Right. So then all of a sudden we have a movement that's based where, where linguistics is, becomes the most important thing, mm-hmm. right? And 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 that is a very academic thing. And it's and and it's not based on the need to unify the working class to make these changes. You know, like the the critiques aren't necessarily coming from a place that says, here is the ultimate goal. It's coming from a place of, well, Nothing's going to change anyway, and I have something to say, and I don't like you, and I don't think you you have the right theory. I don't think you're you're correct, and I don't need to even say it in a way that gets you on my side. Right. I even say it in a way to prove that I'm right. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think there is some value to as you said, letting your voice be heard? It's like greater visibility. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. But if it's if that's all you have, right then all, what you're actually doing is getting people to put their faith in the system. If you don't have the tactic of withholding labor to cause, to make those forces have to answer and have to change, then what you're saying is let's let our voice be heard and we can shame people into doing the right thing. And that's actually what politicians tell you is how it all works. They're telling you they have the power and that that they're going to do the right thing, and that's all you need. And what we are doing by saying all we got to do is have a demonstration, let people know that everyone's upset, is we're saying that's right, that that is how it works, that we just have the wrong people in power, and we just have to put the right people that are more responsive in power. And And it ends up really selling the idea that the system works, it's just we got the wrong people in it. Yeah. Yeah. We're making this sound like the most serious film of all time. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really like very funny. So yeah. what do you find what do you find funny about this whole broken system? Well, I mean, I think that's what what comedy is, is comedy looks at is looking at contradiction. Like it's irony, it's contradiction. When you hear a comedian do a stand up bit and they're, and they're, and they're saying you know, something that, that you thought of before. It's usually talking about some piece of contradiction that's real that nobody has pointed out, and it's illuminating in some way. It might be as stupid as the way the toilet seat works yeah, or whatever, but it's talking about something that that has to do with countering, uh, uh, put positioning two ideas against each other often. And all the people that taught me a lot about organizing were folks that didn't just know like 
the right shit and how the world works. There were people that had a lot of friends. Yeah. And were very jovial, boisterous people that communicated with people. And that was the whole thing. And so, yeah, I think that a lot of things that are sad are the things that could be funny. You can you can just juxtapose two very stark realities and that's that same feeling of it being funny. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I think is really fascinating about the movie is the idea of, I want to say identity as performance. Obviously, this has been in a lot of the commercials is the idea that your main character, Cash, uh, when he's working as a telemarketer, um, uses his his white voice to sort of sell people. But you also like point out in the film that the white voice is not specifically, it's a voice that's supposed to be like without care, without worry in some yeah. ways. Well, in, in the film, uh, what Danny Glover's character Langston explains is that it's all a performance. Mm-hmm that blackness, whiteness, all of this stuff is a performance. He explains the white voice as something that isn't even what white people really sound like, but it's what they want to sound like and what, they're, what they wish they sounded like, what they're told they're supposed to sound like. Mm. And it has to do with that, that feeling, that, that performance of whiteness is something that's supposed to be a counter to what we're told is the performance of blackness. So if the tropes of blackness are that, that if the racist tropes of black blackness are that, you know, here's a culture where uh, that that's incomplete in which people are, the culture is making them make the wrong decisions. They're savage. They're not as smart or they're, 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 you know, just caught up in machismo or whatever, and making these decisions that are bad, then the counter to that is like, you know, I, I got everything handled. Mm. And I'm not really worried about any of this stuff. Mm. Um, it's all an intellectual endeavor. I don't need, you know, money. I, matter of fact, I make $19,000 a year and I am middle class. Mm. <laughs> you know, and always racist tropes. Uh, about people of color are ones that are used to keep the white working class from siding with other people in the working class and looking more towards ideas that the ruling class has as as being of their own, which explains people, poor white people uh, siding with Trump. The r- racist ideas have a utility. Mm-hmm. That's the reason why they exist. They have a utility under this system. And that utility allows a large group of of working class folks to feel more allied with rich white people than poor people of other ethnicities. We end every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions. So I'm going to ask you, who is the filmmaker you learned the most from, living or dead, that you have never met? Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Interesting. Why do you say that? His focus on the characters and the way the relationship between the main character and someone else is often the launching point for everything else mm-hmm. in the movie. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite movie of his? Uh, uh, there Will Be Blood. Oh, yeah. Great film. Great film. Well, Boots Riley, the movie is Sorry to Bother You. Thank you for joining us. Mm-hmm.
Thank you. We're going to take a little break, but when we come back, I'm going to be talking to Jonah Levy and Matt Silva. They are the makeup artists who worked on the summer comedy Uncle Drew. But first, a word about Oxygen's true crime podcast, Martinis and Murder. Hey there, I'm John. And I'm Darren. And this is Martinis and Murder. A weekly podcast that rehashes crimes, investigates new information, and ponders theories you may have never even considered. And we do it all while drinking. Because frankly, that's how most things in life should be done, right? Of course. From murders you've seen on the news to remote crimes in areas of the world you've never even heard of. We're the place for mysterious murders and creepy crimes. So hit that subscribe button to make sure you get new episodes downloaded every week. Sit back, relax, and get ready for Martinis Martinis and Murder. Murder. Ooh, this is good, Matt. Have you checked out Vox's show on Netflix, Explain? Every episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one important topic. And this week, that is the most important topic of all, cricket. If you have no idea how cricket is played, and I I assure you, I do not, you will after you see this episode. But you're also going to find out how this sport became a global phenomenon. You're going to find out why there's so many people around the world who play it. And you're going to get to see Stephen Fry, the great British comedian, talk to you about cricket and why he loves it and how it's played and all of that. So you know what? Go check it out on Netflix. You can search for Explained or for Vox, or you can just go to Netflix.com slash Explained. Welcome back to I Think You're Interesting. I'm still Todd Vanderwerp, and I'm still the I, and I think you're interesting. Some of the most fun I've had in the theater this summer has been with the very silly basketball comedy Uncle Drew, in which a coach played by the great Lil Rel Howery, who has just lost his team, recruits a bunch of old men to play for him. Those old men are all played by NBA legends, including folks like Kyrie Irving, Shaquille O'Neal, and Chris Webber. See that right there? That's the problem with your generation. Million dollar move and a five cent finish. You talk a lot of smack for geriatric. It's a shame you can't back any of it up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a favor. Huh? Hold my nuts. Oh, Joe Nuts. All you one of these out here won't play like Jordan. So we trying to Morgan Freeman? That might sound like a weird idea for a movie, but Uncle Drew is full of fun performances, good slapstick gags, and surprisingly deft old age makeup that somehow stands up to constant play on a basketball court. The makeup is thanks to Jonah Levy and Matt Silva of Blue Whale Studios in Atlanta, and I was thrilled to have them join me to talk about what goes into great movie makeup, both in Uncle Drew and in some of their favorite movies. Hello, Jonah. Hi, how you doing? Hi, Matt. Hey, how's it going? I I really like the makeup in this movie, and the thing that I liked about it was I wasn't thinking about the makeup all of the time, if that makes sense. You know, sometimes when you see a movie like this where you've had to sort of age the characters up to make them look like they're going to be old, you're just constantly looking at the makeup and being like, that's really – that's just really impressive, but, like, it's too showy in some ways. Tell me about finding that line between, like – you know, I know Kyrie Irving is not an old man. Like, tell me about finding the line between making it seem kind of seamless, but also getting to ply your craft. Well, first of all, Todd, thank you very much for saying that. That is, I think, uh, this is Jonah, by the way. This is, uh, uh, that's the ultimate compliment. You know, for Matt and I, that was really a, a, a key approach was, we don't want you to be focusing on the makeup. We want you to be focusing on the movie and the characters. And, uh, that was a really big deal for us to create memorable characters, but that also wouldn't take the audience out of the movie. There was uh, a conversation with producer Marty Bowen where in some of the first tests with the makeup, 
he was concerned that the makeups weren't funny enough. And it was a real point on our end that we felt it was really important that the makeups be as serious as possible, at least from quality. They can have funny parts to them, like, you know, the hair work on Shaq is so funny. But it's like, but the makeup itself really needs to be serious so that the comedy can come from the performance. Tell me a little bit about, like, what is the process behind old age makeup. I know absolutely nothing about it. It seems like one of those things that a makeup artist wants to have in their toolkit, but everybody must approach it a little bit differently. So tell me about the process of making somebody, you know, uh, look old. Sure. I think the most, I mean, really, it's not uncommon, even in the film business, a lot of people don't really know how much and to what extent goes into um, these kind of serious character makeups. We have to start with a life cast, which is a physical impression of their actual head or body part or whatever you're making the makeup for. When we do that, we, you know, cover them in goo and uh, in silicone and we put a, a plaster bandage jacket around it and then that's how we get the mold of their head. We take tons and tons of photos of them in different, you know, lighting, you know, different expressions, and then we also take a skin color and hair sample test um, so that we sort of know what we need to recreate for them. Um, and that's step one, and that that in and of itself is a ton of work. Um, after that, we we make all of the um, copies of their head or parts of their face that we do all the sculptures on. The sculptures are then molded. They're cast in silicone, and then that takes us all the way to set where we actually apply it. That's amazing. Uh, how, like, how long will it take if I'm going to sit in a chair and get old age makeup applied? Like, how long will that process take? And, and how do you keep your, your actors from going crazy during that process? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a challenge. Part of our job as makeup artists is also to determine, you know, each person's nature. You can kind of get a sense um, from each actor, you know, what their comfort level is going to be um, in terms of how long they're willing to sit and whatnot. But you know, once we have the prosthetics done and ready, we go to set with those. We get a makeup test, and the makeup test really helps us determine um, how long these makeups will take. Now, more often than not, uh, on a shoot like this where we were putting people in makeup up to 35 days, which is a lot of time in full prosthetic makeups, uh, we went from four hours of makeup in the beginning for some of them down to about a little little under three hours. So, for instance, Kyrie Irving, who plays Uncle Drew, uh, his makeup originally was about a four-hour makeup, and we got it down to about two hours and 50 minutes. Um, and that was applying, I believe he had 12 prosthetic appliances glued to him each day, uh, not including wig pieces and uh, hair pieces and mustache and eyebrows and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Two hours and 50 minutes is still a lot of time, though, you know? Yeah, it really is. And and I'll tell you, what was amazing is that all of these athletes were so um, respectful of our time and the process that it took. They came in on time and they showed up ready to work, which really makes our job that much easier. Um, And, you know, as we're doing this, it is a very intimate process where you're in someone's face for multiple hours at a time. So you get to know each other. You find out, you know, a good flow of conversation and... uh, a lot of times they'll get to a point where they just kind of lay back and we just do our job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's a thing I'd never thought about. You have to be up in the face of these actors like every day when they're on set. Like how do you make that not weird? Obviously people go into it knowing this is what's going to happen, but also like how do you make them comfortable so they feel, you know, secure in what's happening? Well, that's a 
a very important conversation that we have with a lot of younger artists is that um, I think there's kind of a a lot of young people have this sort of rock star ideal of what it is to be a makeup artist, but they don't realize that at the end of the day, you're usually just a therapist who glues stuff to people's face. <laughs> um, Jonah and I's philosophy on on our business and and how we work with our team and and our in the our, our clients, the actors, it's all about relationships. And so for us, it's about you know bringing the best relationship to the trailer, being able to. Um, you know, sit down and and you know just be able to let them have their their morning, their quiet time. Let them be able to talk if they need to talk. You know, they are going out of their comfort level to have all this stuff put on them, and so we do our best to you know make the experience as pain free as possible. Uh, so much so that Jonah is actually pretty famous uh, at our at our company for making smoothies in the morning for everybody, just to like lighten the mood and. You know, it's just little things like that that just help soften it. I mean, at the end, and we see them every morning for so long, and then we're with them all day. We take care of them. We fight for them. We make sure they're getting water and that they have air-conditioned tents so that they're not melting. And so, you know, it's all those little things that help us build that relationship with them that makes for comfort. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing I just want to add and that we really try to impress upon new makeup artists is that this is not your time to talk about you and your stories and what's going on in your life. I mean, sometimes you'll have an actor who is very talkative, and we just want to give them the environment that makes them feel comfortable. Sometimes you'll find actors that don't want to talk at all, and so it's our job to just stay quiet and let them have that space that they need to be in. And so that's a really important part of our job, sometimes more so than actually doing the makeup end of it. I mean, obviously that is what we're there for. But we got to make sure that the um, that the actors have the space they need to feel comfortable. And so sometimes it means shutting up and doing your job and letting them kind of be where they need to be. You mentioned heat. And one of the things I know about makeup is that it has a tendency to like melt off or sweat off if it's hot enough. And also uh, the set of any movie is often a very hot place because those lights are on and things like that. How do you how do you guard against that, especially when you have this elaborate thing that takes many hours to put on? That is an excellent question. And I'll tell you, we dealt with the uh, the brunt of it all on this movie. I mean, we had professional athletes playing basketball in full prosthetic makeup in the Atlanta heat and humidity, which is brutal. It's, you know, there were days it was 100 degrees and 100% humidity. So we really had to um, take extra care to make sure that these makeups stayed on. Matt has a really good story about um, working with Chris Weber, uh, which proved to be particularly challenging in keeping the makeup on. So I, I want to let Matt, uh, I think it's important he tells, talks about that. So one of the parts that we take really uh, take into great consideration when we start is the a- actor's comfort level with what we're going to do. Uh, we, you know, we talk to them, gauge their their ability to handle more or less. Um, you know, some people like Shaq were pretty clear that they they didn't have a ton of time, so we couldn't do really big, you know, dramatic looks. Um, but Chris Weber was very, very much into the idea of becoming somebody different, um, being transformed into his character, and so I sculpted his pieces to be exactly that. They were. Uh, very big. There were a lot of them, um, and you know, really help change him completely so that he could just assume the role of preacher. But the 
the scary thing that we found out was that he had a mild sensitivity to the the prosthetic glue that we use. And so we had to switch to a water-soluble glue that he could sweat off, but that was more sensitive to his skin. Uh, And on top of that, we had to apply everything over a layer of moisturizer to help protect his skin. Um, And so as soon as we got outside and he started running up and down the court, it was uh, there there were literally shots where his neck was hanging off. Um, And fortunately, the directors and the producers knew that we were were really working to take care of Chris's skin, and they were working with us to make sure that, like, he was comfortable. So— you know, we ended up making it work, and it was really a testament to both Chris's flexibility to, you know, producer Marty Bow and John Fisher for their understanding, and and to director Charles Stone, who would, who gave us the time to run back to the trailer and and fix his neck and come back whenever we had to, because uh, at the end of the day, we had to make sure that these guys were taken care of. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to chime in on one thing about that. That was one of the really the saving graces on this film. I mean, we. You know, a film like this, you normally have three to four, maybe five months of prep time. We had about six weeks maximum. And for a character like Chris Weber, who wasn't cast until two weeks before he needed to start filming, we were under the gun the entire time. And the support we had from the producers and the director was unbelievable. Um, And so when we ran into that problem with Chris, you know, we had pretty long conversations with them to let them know what the challenge was. And there was no pushback. They were just so supportive in allowing us to kind of resolve the issues. This movie is such an underdog from the way it started. You know, we they, they contacted us six weeks before filming, and we didn't even have a signed contract yet. Um, but, but, like, through the whole time, no matter how hard it was, like, the idea of doing seven old-age makeups that are going to play 35 days through a movie seems ridiculous. Um, making the movie, we shot through a hurricane. I mean, it was—there were just so many things going against us. And it—but we always felt that there was this weird, like— real tangible sense of heart about both the making of the movie and actually like filming it and it was amazing when the when the review started coming out i think it was like a chicago tribune or something this movie is not should not be as good as it is but here we are and that that kind of really like it's the same with our makeups we wish we could have made them you know we wish we had the time to have made them what we really wanted them to be especially with like hair work we wish we had more time but uh, like we really did like do the best we could with what we had and and it seems to have resonated with people and that that's special like as much as we want to nitpick it like we're glad people still enjoyed it and Todd that goes back to your comment about you know how you you were able to let go of staring at the makeup and get involved in the movie so that again that's a really big compliment and we appreciate that well i I've, I've uh, asked you guys to come up with some some other movies you've loved that you think have great movie makeup. Um, but tell me like just sort of briefly, you know, 30 seconds or so, like what do you think makes great movie makeup when you see a movie and you think, Oh, that had great makeup. Like, like what, what pings that in your mind? You know, I think it's kind of exactly what you, you know, just relayed to us is some of my favorite makeups are, are ones that, you know, as a kid and as a teenager, I didn't even know were makeups. You know, I wouldn't say it's maybe the best makeup out there, but I, I remember seeing Looper. It, it wasn't until the end of the movie that I saw the credits roll and it was like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And I was like, who is he? Like, He's the main guy. Hmm. And then, of course, we, we know the makeup artist who did that 
who designed that makeup and we're like his name's Kazuhiro he's he's the best you know um but uh, we were, I was just floored I was probably like 18 or 19 at the time and I I just had no idea who it was or that he was wearing prosthetics and being fooled it's like magic like being fooled just makes it so incredibly magical Agreed. And and Kazu did another makeup. Uh, you know, he designed uh, the makeup on Gary Oldman for Darkest Hour. I got to say, in recent years, that's one of the best makeups because you know it's Gary Oldman, but but you're able to step out of that. And it's so flawlessly done. Look, I mean, in your mind, you know Gary Oldman's playing Winston Churchill, right? But as you're watching the movie, you you step away from that. And that's a pretty... That's a pretty magical experience. And I think that's the goal for any makeup artist is to to get the audience to forget they're watching a magic trick so they can really get invested in the story. Because at the end of the day, that's what it's about. You know, um, we've all seen some really great make- makeups in really bad movies, too, or vice versa, a good movie with a terrible makeup. And so it separates you from being able to focus on it. So. So, you know, that that's it. I mean, that's that's what we all are striving for is to to just be part of the team to tell the story and not cause um, the audience to lose focus because they're, you know, too hyper focused on a makeup. I remember the first time there was a press still for the darkest hour and and Mm -hmm. just looking at it, you were like, okay, Gary Oldman does not look like Gary Oldman. Mm-hmm. He's going to win an Oscar. The makeup people are going to win an Oscar, and indeed, mm-hmm. both of those things came true. So, yeah, uh, I think that's 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 a great call there. Um, tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about like when you are going to turn somebody into quote unquote a real person. Like, like what's the what's the conversation you have to have there? Well, one of the, one of the first things is you got to really. I mean, for us, Matt and I really try to approach what is the goal and what are we trying to convey. So if for instance, in Uncle Drew, you know, we wanted to make sure that we were creating memorable characters versus just old age men and women. How do we create characters that can resonate with the audience and that also allow each of the athletes to perform at their highest level where they're not overly encumbered by makeups? You know, for instance, we didn't want to create a big, heavy fat makeup, which would also require a fat suit because we think it would be funny. We wanted to make sure that we could play off of each athlete's own features, but also make sure we could apply them quickly. We could get them, you know, on them and and they could get out and do their thing quickly. So a lot of it for this in particular was creating memorable characters. Um, When you're aging someone, you know, you got to look at their facial features. You want to study how they're going to age, how they're going to naturally mature, and you want to play off of that. And that kind of helps bring us back to your original question, some of our favorite makeups, like top five. And Coming to America has some of Jonah and I's favorite makeups all over, like through the whole movie. But in that movie, there are a ton, like the barbershop scene. Most of the barbershop makeups are not really great makeups. They're okay, but they're really funny and they they make you remember like the performance um, and they they kind of just help embody who they're trying to play. On the other side of that, the old Jewish man in the barbershop makeup is probably both Jonah and I is like one of our favorite makeups of all time. Uh, it is so incredibly good, especially considering that that was foam latex, which is an opaque material, you know. And so that that's a really really hard uh, medium to get a really convincing character, um, and. 
uh, you know, you got to hand it to both Rick Baker, who designed that makeup, and also to Eddie Murphy, who really brought it to life. And, you know, Rick Baker on that makeup did some really ingenious things. And, like, uh, if you look at some of the behind-the-scenes photos, he um, used a vacuum form, a little thin plastic sheet uh, that was form-fitted to the top of Eddie Murphy's head so it could compress down his hair so you wouldn't see his uh, hair kind of coming through the makeup so he could create this balding effect. Eddie Murphy was unwilling to, you know, he he wouldn't shave his mustache, and he couldn't because of the character that he played throughout the film. So they had to be able to go over his own mustache. I mean, there's just some really smart things, and when you look at that makeup, it it's brilliantly done. It's still one of my favorites to this day. Um the other one that we were talking about earlier was uh, F. Murray Abraham as Salieri and Amadeus. That was one of the makeups that inspired me at a very early age because it was just so convincing. And Dick Smith, who has inspired so many of us and has really paved the way for us, that makeup just to this day is still one of my all-time favorites. And in Amadeus, he like ages across several decades, right? Like his right. Were, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, and and then the final one is when he's in the the hospital in the psychiatric ward, you know, and he's he's got the, you know, a piece of cloth around his neck from when he tried to kill himself and and he used um uh, Dick Smith actually used a copy uh, of his own forehead, a life cast of his own forehead and did a press out of that and then ended up turning that into a prosthetic uh, for F. Murray Abraham. So there's just these real subtle things that that were done. Um, and again, they, you know, they didn't have all the materials that we have to work with today. So uh, those two makeups were, for me and for Matt were really, really impressive. You, you talk about the the kind of the, the wound on his, his neck in that movie. And like that strikes me as another thing you guys have to deal with a lot is like prosthetics that look like injuries or like look like open wounds like what's uh what's tricky about doing something like that i think the trickiest part about trauma makeup is that reality is stranger than fiction Mm -hmm. i mean i can't tell you i was an intern back in like 2007 and the very first shop i ever worked at and my uh, mentor at the time cut his finger on a table saw and it was it was very like just the tip of his finger got nicked, and he hates that I say the word nicked because to him it was like a hacksaw wound. But it really did like it, for a table saw to just cut the skin and not take off your finger is uh, like a blessing. <laughs> but we were sitting in the emergency room looking at his finger, and it literally looked like somebody had glued ground beef to his finger and poured like red food dye colored syrup on top. It just didn't look real. And we were just laughing at like if we had put that in front of a camera, a director would fire us. But there it was. That's reality. Um, So part of the tricky thing with all of the makeups that we do is that there is this suspension of disbelief that we have to play to. And there's also what we have to play to the theater of the mind that that there's an expectation of what it is not what it really is. I, I have a distinct memory on a movie called Triple Nine. Um, I have a friend who's a forensics uh, consultant, um, and he was on on set that day helping with a crime scene, and he was showing them how to do the fingerprint dusting. And the director was like, "No, no, more dust, more dust." And he's like, "Oh, you would never use this much." And he's like, "I don't care. That's what we're doing." So that's <laughs> the car was covered in pink fingerprint powder dust, it looked ridiculous. But that's what people want to see, even if it isn't what's real. And that's that's such a great metaphor for almost all the kinds of makeup that we do. 
Well, we, we talked about Looper, where Joseph Gordon-Levitt became Bruce Willis. We talked about The Darkest Hour, where Gary Oldman became Winston Churchill. Coming to America, where Eddie Murphy became so many different people. And uh, Amadeus, where F. Murray Abraham ages across quite a bit of his life and has some great injury stuff. Do you have one more movie where you just really love the makeup? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise has done something really uh, interesting for makeup. I, I don't know that any of the makeups in those movies are the greatest, but they, those makeups, all the different people with bright colored skin, yellow, blue, pink, you're talking about insane amounts of aliens and different kinds with crazy, like crazy designs. It has been so, so long since we have seen movies that took that big of a risk with makeup. And I think that to me as an artist, that's a really special franchise because it opened the door to bolder makeup choices, you know, now in the years after the, that the first movies come out. And so for me, I think that, that that movie as a whole holds a special place because now I feel we are living in a time where we can do stuff that's a little more out there um, and people are into it. Yeah, I, I would definitely second that. I didn't think about that, Matt, but I, I, I would agree with that because, you know, you don't in, – in, before in, you know, science fiction movies, it's Star Trek or Star Wars, you rarely saw bright yellow. I don't know if I ever remember seeing bright yellow or bright green, bright pink aliens all in the same room at once. And I maybe mean, maybe they're not even that great of makeups, but they open up the conversation to be like, well, okay, maybe the bright pink people didn't really look that cool, but – what if we did this and what if we tried this? Like now people are emboldened to be a little more risky with uh, makeup choices. Whereas for a long time, it's been about, ah, don't do it in makeup. It's not worth it. It might not look good. Let's just, we'll worry about it in post. And, you know, now there's so, we've gotten a sort of resurgence of, of you know, practical makeup that's a little more crazy. And that, I think that's really special. For sure. Well, uh, Jonah, I am looking I have looked at your your IMDb, and I, sometimes those are inaccurate, but you have been a very small part of several of these Marvel movies. And I just to kind of close it out, those are like the biggest movies in the world now. What's it like being a tiny cog in this giant, giant machine? Well, you know, it's funny. Matt and I both have worked on several of the, the Marvel movies um, together. And in fact, before Matt and I partnered up, um, we were both on Guardians of the Galaxy 2. And that's where we really solidified our partnership and, and came together to open the company together. You know, I, I got to say, I mean, I grew up loving comic books and superheroes. So for me, it was and has been a dream come true. I, I remember uh, about six or seven years ago, one of my checklists, one of my 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 goals was to say, I want to work on a Captain America film because Captain America was always a huge part of my upbringing. And uh, when I was on Avengers last year, uh, the first day I was on set, Outwalk Cap, and I was like, okay, I'm checking that one off the bucket list. It was nice. But really, I got to say, I mean, in a time, some people may be tired of the superhero genre, but I, I think it's really uh, an amazing thing that they've been able to endure for so long. I mean, it is our form of, you know, mythology that we're still telling. And it gives you this place to escape. And so to be a part of that, one small part of it, um, and to be entrusted to kind of take that responsibility on um, and to and to carry that legacy that's been going on since, you know, the early 1900s, it's a pretty big, for me, it's a pretty big honor um, to, to, and I don't forget that. When I'm on set, 
Um, really for anything. I mean, it's the same thing with being a makeup artist. You know, there are people, uh, Jack Pierce, John Chambers, Dick Smith, Rick Baker, Sam Winston. There's been these amazing artists that have paved the way for us to be here today. And I think um, that's one of the big things. And, and, I, and I really quickly want to circle back to Uncle Drew only in saying that that's kind of what the heart of the film is, is paying homage to the people that came before you so you can take that knowledge and you can bring it forward today and hopefully inspire others. And I think Matt and I are very much on the same page that, you know, you know, you got to know your past so you can move forward and really embrace that and, and then try to try to expand upon that. And we don't take lightly the people that have come before us. Um, and so when we're on uh, a Marvel set or any other set, you know, we really keep that in mind to make sure that we, we really pay pay homage to the people that have done it and paved the way for us. Jonah, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, Uncle check Drew out their stuff. It's still so in theaters and people thank can find so other stuff you've worked on uh, everywhere, I'm sure. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Feel free. We, uh, we're online. We're at uh, fxmakeup.com. You can see us on Instagram and uh, at, at Blue Whale Makeup and Facebook. We're at Blue Whale Studios, Inc. So you don't know this, but I recorded this entire episode in extremely elaborate old age makeup. I look like I'm 110 years old, and I don't know why I did it. This isn't a video show, but uh, you, you just you just need to have that picture in your head. So go back and listen to it a second time, imagining that. And I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the host and executive producer of I Think You're Interesting. My producer is Bridget Armstrong. Our executive producer of audio at Vox Media is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our uh, studio this week is thanks to Rebel Talk Network. And our recording engineer is Ernie Hurtado. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you find podcasts. It helps us get the word out about the show and really helps us continue to get great guests. You can email me, Todd, at Vox.com. You can email the show, ityi.podcast at Vox.com. And if you want to tweet at me, you can tweet at me at TVOTI to Vody. Please remember to subscribe to Martinis and Murder from Oxygen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And, oh, right, hey, I Think You're Interesting has been nominated for this year's People's Choice Podcast Awards. Please go vote for our show for free by going to podcastawards.com or by tapping the link in the show notes. Voting ends on Tuesday, July 31st, so please don't wait. Go to podcastawards.com right now to cast your vote for I Think You're Interesting. That's I Think You're Interesting, podcastawards.com. To my mom, you better vote for me.